Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you show us through your servant Abraham your faithfulness to your people and the fact that you can do all things. Help us to remain faithful and stand firm in your goodness. And let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. So this summer, we're continuing through our series in Genesis, but we make kind of a big jump forward this week. Not, not too big. We're still with Abraham, but we jump past a few, few critical details in his life. So I want to take just a few minutes to, to go over them because it sets the stage for what we see this morning. So immediately after where we left off last week, if you were here with us last week, Abraham decides, or there's a, there's a famine in the land, and Abraham goes down to Egypt where he does some questionable things. Read chapter 12 if you are curious about those questionable things. And uh, then he comes back much wealthier than he was when he went down, and he was probably already fairly wealthy when he went. Then Abraham and his nephew Lot kind of have a conversation because their servants are fighting with each other, and they go, well, we'll, we'll separate. Finally, Lot and, and Abraham are separate, or Abraham are separated, fulfilling that part which he was told to do to leave behind his family. But then something happens, and, and uh, it kind of sounds like the beginning of Canterbury Tales, you know, if, if you're familiar with that, you know, they, they're all on a pilgrim, because that pilgrimage, because that's what young people do in the spring, apparently, in medieval England, or just after medieval England, I, I don't know. Um, but in this case, it's the kings are fighting, because that's what kings do. Um, and of course, then Lot gets captured by the king, and Abraham rallies his posse, and they go out and, and relieve, re- free Lot from those who were with him. And, and something really, a couple really interesting things happen right after he's, he's rescued Lot from his captors. First, his captor, or there's some people that want to split his wealth with, with, or split their wealth with Abraham, and he says, no, no, no. And he's starting to learn here. He's, we'll, we'll see he hasn't quite picked up everything, but he's, he's at least starting to get a clue that he's got to trust the Lord and not, not other people or, or even himself. And he says, no, no, I don't want to take wealth from you because I want everybody to know who made me rich, that the Lord made me rich. So, so we see Abraham starting to get a clue, but we'll see shortly that it's, it's not as, as much as we might like. And then another interesting thing is this mysterious character appears whose name is Melchizedek. He blesses him. He seems to be a priest, and then he just disappears. And that's all we ever know about Melchizedek, except that he seems to be a priest to the Lord, and he's probably the king of what is now Jerusalem. And he's an interesting character because Melchizedek is, is a priest to the Lord, and he's the lineage which Christ claims to come from in his priestly ministry. Christ is said to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So that's where that comes from, and we don't know a whole lot more about it than that, except that he's faithful to the Lord. If you want to read that, that's chapter 14. Chapter 15 God reiterates this promise to Abraham, and Abraham's finally like, no, wait a second, God. Like, I'm old. I'm really old. I know how this works, and what you're saying isn't going to work. And God takes him out, and he shows him all the stars, and he's like, you will have as many descendants as these stars. And Abraham trusts him and believes him, except that in, then in chapter 16, something really horrible and tragic happens. And that is Sarah says to Abraham, you know, why don't you take my servant, Hagar, 
and make yourself an heir. And instead of being like, that, that sounds like a bad idea, we're not going to do that. I know sometimes we have ideas, and some are good, some are bad. I was telling a friend, I usually either have really good ideas or really, really bad ideas. This falls into that really, really bad idea category, but he still does it. And read chapter 16 if you want to read about all that heartache. But he takes upon himself, he, try, he tries to kind of take control of the situation as we so often do. And then God comes back, or, or the Lord, and as he's referred to throughout this passage, comes back and he completes the covenant with Abraham. Here he says, Abram now will no longer be called Abram, but Abraham, and Sarah will be called Sarah. But something more interesting happens. For those of you who are here as we finished up the flood narrative, remember what we saw in that covenant. Remember how the covenant was, was really one-sided. God was just acting towards humanity. But now, all of a sudden, Abraham has responsibilities in this covenant. And there's, there starts to be this glimmer of hope that now, that now there's a two-way street. That, that what was severed at that flood is actually coming back together. And we see this now as, as the relationships continues to repair. <clears throat> and so there's, there's hope as we enter into our reading this morning. This morning, we find... We find Abraham kind of chilling in the, in the vestibule of his tent, just sitting out trying to relax because it's the heat of the day, and I've been trying to get work done around the house, and I spent the morning yesterday getting work done, and by, the, by 11 o'clock, I was exhausted, and I didn't want to do anything else, and I wanted to do exactly what Abraham did and just sit in the shade and relax because it was so hot. So for those of us who live here in Arizona, we know exactly what it's like to try and do work in the middle of the day when it's so hot. And that's what Abraham's doing. He's just relaxing, trying not to overexert himself, trying not to get heat stroke or any, any of those things. And then three men appear. And we shouldn't assume that these three men are the Trinity. It would be fun if they were, but it's not really what's going on here. It is, however, Yahweh or the Lord. And, and I want to be specific and use his, his official title that he gives himself, Yahweh, because there's two words for Lord, and the second one actually comes up in this passage, and it gets a little confusing. So Yahweh, the Lord, appears with two angels, and Abraham does something. He runs out to them. He runs to be hospitable. Now, have you ever met a saint who had walked with the Lord their whole lives? And, you know, you knew they were kind of getting close to the end of their lives, but they were just, they were beautiful because they'd been through things they had their heart broken. They had probably broken some hearts. They had made some mistakes and seen what God's grace does in their lives. We see this with Abraham now because he's, he's made some mistakes. He's done some things that he's probably not super proud of. He's also seen God work in his life. He's seen battle. He's seen pain. He's seen sorrow. But he's seen the goodness of the Lord through all of that. And he's starting to shift. And so when we meet him here, he runs to be hospitable and demonstrates for us the very nature of what it means to be hospitable, the very nature of what we are called to do. Abraham shows what it means to be hospitable, that it is inconvenient, that he is insistent and unbiased in it, that it is done with modesty, but it is done with abundance. It is inconvenient because it's the heat of the day. 
Imagine if you were sitting outside on your porch yesterday and in the shade and just relaxing and your, your good friend that you haven't seen in years pulled up and was at the end of your driveway and you ran out to them. If you're like me, by the time you got to them, even though it's only a couple, 20 or 30 feet, you'd be drenched in sweat. Hopefully you're, you're more merciful with your sweat glands than, than, than I am, but <clears throat> it would be inconvenient, but you'd be excited to run out to them. And it's the same idea. He's, it's an inconvenience to him to show this hospi- hospitality, and yet he does it. And he's insistent and unbiased. And he says, oh, Lord, or probably better translated, my Lord, I want you to stay and have this meal with me. Now, when he says, my Lord, this is what I was referring to. He's, he, he doesn't quite realize that it's Yahweh that has come to visit him, that it's Yahweh and a couple of angels. He thinks it's somebody that's passing through. And so he just wants to show these people hospitality, and that's pretty amazing. But it's done with modesty. He doesn't say, I'm going to make you this giant feast. He says, let me give you some water for your feet, which if you've walked outside in the heat of the day, you know why that's necessary. I won't go into details. If you don't ask me, ask, ask me later, and I'll explain it to you. And he offers them a morsel to eat, just, just a little bit. But it's also done with abundance. If I did my math right, and I did it quickly, and I did it last night when I was a little tired, I may be wrong, but it's something like well over 100 little, you could make with what he was asking, well over 100 of those little flat breads that they eat in the Middle East. And he gives them a calf to eat and a bunch of, a bunch of milk. That's a lot of food for three people. And, and probably Abraham's servants joined in in the, in the showing of, of hospitality. But he does it, he just shows them, gives them this abundance. So hospitality is done with modesty and with abundance. And of course, abundance is relative. doesn't mean that if you have... in your bank account, you should spend $30 to show somebody hospitality, but you can probably give them a cold drink and a bag of chips if they stop by to visit. And for you, that would be abundant. For others, they might have a feast that more resembles this. But either way, for the Christian, we're called to mimic this hospitality. And most likely, this is what the author of Hebrews was thinking about, was this very moment in Scripture When they write that some have entertained angels unaware. Because that's what Abraham is doing up until this moment. He is entertaining angels and Yahweh unaware. Now think back over what just our our very quick snapshot view of Abraham's life up until now. He's, He's made some pretty serious blunders along the way. He's made some pretty serious mistakes. But the Lord is changing him. The Lord is melding him to be a representative of of him on earth. And if you are in Christ, that's what the Lord is doing for you. He is changing you. He is giving you a heart of flesh where a heart of stone once resided. It doesn't matter where you started. You might be kind of bumbling like Abraham. You might be a, a warrior like you seem to have been. You might have been angry. You might have made some mistakes in your youth that you're not proud of. But that doesn't mean that the Lord can't change you and that the Lord can't use you. He can and he will. And then as we read on, the Lord asks him a question. He says, well, where is Sarah, your wife? 
And it seems to be at that moment, if we read the text carefully, that it clicks, if you will, in Abraham's mind. That this just isn't some guy that was foolish enough to be wandering through the wilderness in the midst of the heat of the day. That this is Yahweh the Lord that has come to visit him. It's another theophany. It's another visitation of the Lord to him. And as he asks where Sarah is, this clicks. And then then the Lord tells him again that their son will be born. In fact, their child, their son will be born by next year this time. And what does Sarah do? Sarah laughs. I don't think we can really fault Sarah for that. I mean, if I was Sarah and, well, if somebody told me I was going to have a baby, I would be a little bit confused. But, um, or bear a baby, I guess, would be the more appropriate one. But think about that for a second. If you've received, which undoubtedly most of us have, good news that seems too good to be true, isn't your reaction often like that? I've told this story before, but I think about when Julie was pregnant with Lucy, and she knows probably exactly where I'm going with this one. And she took a pregnancy test, and then she took a second pregnancy test and kept asking me what it meant. And even when I told her a few times, she then called a friend up to ask her what it meant. (laughs) Because we had waited so long to meet each other, to get married, to have a child, that it It just seemed impossible that two months in, she'd be pregnant with our child. And yet, Lucy is here now and being surprisingly (laughs) well-behaved. And so it's not all that surprising that Sarah laughs. Because even way, way back then, she knew enough about biology to know that her body can't do that anymore. It's not a possibility. And she wonders... How can this possibly be? To which the Lord says, is anything too hard for the Lord? And this idea comes up again and again and again in Scripture. And there's a couple places in the Gospel that, that further illuminate this. First is at the birth of John. While the angel is telling Mary that she will give birth to Jesus, Mary's like, I know how biology works, man. Like, that's not going to happen because I haven't done things that I need to do to have a baby. And so the angel tells him about Elizabeth, who very similarly was a little on the old side to have John, and yet she is pregnant with John the Baptist. And it's the same for Mary, that, that nothing is impossible for God. But there's another more interesting one that kind of starts to unpack how we want to understand this, how we want to understand that nothing is too hard for the Lord. And that's in Matthew 19, where the rich man comes up to Jesus and starts asking him about how he earns eternal life. And Jesus tells him, well, sell everything and follow me. And the rich man goes away sad. And then his disciples are asking him about what happened and why this is all happening. And Jesus starts talking about how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the reality is here, he's not condemning the rich, but he's saying that The more money you have, the more of a temptation it is to trust your money. The more of a temptation it is to say, well, this is where my salvation lies, in my thousands or millions or so on and so forth. That makes it really hard to trust Jesus for your salvation. And then they're like, well, that's, that's awful. But he says, no, no, 
Nothing is impossible for the Lord. No, no. I can still save anybody that I choose to save. But this idea, this nothing is impossible, nothing is too hard for the Lord, is one of those things that we tend to misuse and misapply. And you've probably heard this. Perhaps you've heard, I'm going to win this game because nothing is impossible for the Lord. Or I'm going to get this raise because nothing is impossible for the Lord. You can fill in the blank of, of different examples. And of course, if you get the raise, if you win the game, whatever it is that you are hoping to achieve, you give the glory to the Lord. But just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're going to get the raise. It doesn't mean you're going to win the game. The application is that God can make all things happen. He can move mountains, but all things are done out of his will for his glory. This story, and this is the hard fact, this story isn't about you. This story is about God and his glory. This story is about God redeeming the world. God's love poured out in the world. And so we get great and incredible benefits from it, but you're not the hero or the center of the story. This morning I stumbled across a, a church's website, not locally or anything like that. Don't go looking for it. <clears throat> but all, everybody on the front page of the website had a t-shirt that said, I have decided. And it made me really sad because that's not how salvation works. Whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminian, God changes your heart so that you can come to know Christ. It's God that does all the work in your salvation. He has chosen you. He is saving you. He is sanctifying you. And that's great news for us because it means that God can convert even the most unregenerate heart. He can take the heart of the person that you've prayed for night and day, year in and year out, and bring them to know Christ. It's not on you. It's God's working in his time. God can sustain and build the smallest church. I've, I've been talking about a few, this to a few people, but another fun fact is that my five-year anniversary of being here is also rapidly approaching. July and August is apparently a very busy month for me. And I've talked to a few people about this. This isn't the church that I started at. The church has changed and grown. And I'd love to be like, well, that's because I'm amazing. <laughs> I'm really not, I promise. And I, I don't really think that about myself. It's because the Lord has worked here. It's because we followed him and he's done good things. And that's beautiful. And God can use the oldest saint or the youngest saint to bring him glory. The most encouraging Christian that I've known was this old lady at the church that I served in in North Carolina. And I was there for about a year before I came here. And some of the time, about half the time, she was homebound. And so some of the time I would get to go and visit her. And we would sit and talk. And she would tell me stories of joys and sorrows and of the things that the Lord had done in her life. That was so encouraging to see. 
the Lord used that little old lady who couldn't do a whole lot but sit and watch birds and pray to encourage me, to help me continue to run the race that's set before me. So God, so nothing, my friends, is too hard for the Lord. He changes hearts. He's done amazing things in this community. And he can use you no matter where you are in life. This morning we end with Sarah being rebuked for doubting this, for doubting that the Lord can do anything. And who can blame Sarah for her cynical laughter? I think if we were all in that situation, we'd at least be like, yeah, sure, all right. But God rebukes her for her unbelief, and, and, and she models yet again, as, as so often we see in Old Testament, what repentance doesn't look like. Repentance is owning our sin and saying, yep, you know what, I did laugh. I didn't trust that this would happen. Please forgive me. And so often we're like, well, no, no, I didn't, I didn't do that. But that's what repentance looks like. And in that, we're called to trust that nothing is too hard for the Lord. And we find ourselves in a situation that's very similar to Sarah's. The church, the church universal has been waiting for 2,000 years for the return of Christ. And we might wonder, like Sarah, well, this maybe will never actually happen. We might wonder, how long, oh Lord, how long? Especially when it seems impossible to turn on the news and not see evil. We see so much evil, but we are reminded that nothing is too hard for the Lord. He can take a man like Abraham and form him to be the patriarch of a great people. He can take a man like me and change my heart. He can take a church like us and grow us in Christ. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. And so, you and I are called to persevere, to trust that he will do what he will promise, that one day soon he will return and we will see his glory fully. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.